Probably be better if I turn this thing on, right? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter number 6. Galatians number 6. If you're using an outline from the bulletin this morning, there are a couple of notable changes that you will see as we go through this. But first of all, we're covering the first 11 verses, not the first 8 verses. And there are five points rather than four. We have all seen the television ads which say, have you been injured? You may be entitled to a cash award. Well, the U.S. legal system uh, ensures that every American who feels that they have been injured or victimized is able to uh, seek justice through the court system, and that is clearly a noble and necessary protection. However, in recent decades, the United States has earned a title as one of the most litigious societies in the world. Could that be true? Well, you be the judge. There are roughly 300 million Americans. Of these, over one million are lawyers. No other nation on earth has or wants that many lawyers. Perhaps you remember the case of 81-year-old Stella Lineback. She became famous for successfully suing McDonald's restaurant for serving her hot coffee. After buying the coffee, she took the lid off, put the coffee cup between her knees while she was driving. She hit a bump or something, and surprise, she got burned. So she sued McDonald's and won a settlement. Ever since then, the name the Stella Awards has been applied to any wild or outrageous or ridiculous lawsuits, including some uh, rather infamous uh, bogus cases. It is not surprising then that lawsuits have found their way into the church. These lawsuits among Christians have an effect on both the church and the world that we're trying to reach. The words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth about taking each other to court and suing each other I don't think could have any greater application for the church today. There are five things that I want you to see with me tonight as we look at what Paul has to say about this subject. First of all, he says that such action is inappropriate for a Christian. Verse 1, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? We need to be clear here. Paul is not saying that a Christian can never go to court. We have the same rights as any other American to personal property, protection of the law, just payment for services, and due process. Even Paul himself at times appealed to the Gentile court system as we see in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 25. Nor is he saying that there was something innately wrong with the public court system of that day. Rather, he is saying that it is wrong to go to court, he is saying, rather, that it is wrong to take a fellow believer to court. It is wrong to drag a brother or sister in Christ before a non-Christian judge 
and expect to get the wisdom of God. It is wrong to use the public court system as a forum to air the squabbles of the church. Because the culture of that day found a good legal battle entertaining, any lawsuit soon became public knowledge. That apparently is also true in our day, as evidenced by all the television shows that are courtroom dramas, such as Judge Judy, uh, Divorce Court, I can't even name all the ones that are on there, to say nothing of real life cases like uh, Jody Arias and those other cases that we see on television. Paul is saying it's a shame to drag your church's name through the mud. I have to also say that you can do the same thing without going to court. If you tell your neighbors and your friends and your family everything that you think is wrong with your church, don't be surprised then if they were reluctant to attend when you invite them. Not only is such an action inappropriate, but Paul says such an action is based on ignorance of our position as saints in verses 2 through 4. He says, do, do you not know? The saints will judge the world, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Six times in this chapter and twice in these verses, Paul asked the question, do you not know? The problem seemed to be that these Christians were ignorant of the fact that one day they would be involved in judging the world. We are told that when Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom, the saints will be involved in judging the angels. This is a fact that we don't see any revealed anywhere else in scripture. That's a fascinating thought to conceive that one day Christians will be judging angels but that does not mean that we'll sit in judgment of fateful angels as if they have somehow let us down but that we'll have some part in judging the fallen angels Paul continues in verse 4 by saying if then you have judgments concerning these things pertaining to this life do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge John MacArthur says of that verse, the poorest equipped believer who seeks the counsel of God's word and his spirit is much more competent to settle disagreements between fellow believers than the most highly trained and experienced unbelieving judge who is devoid of divine truth. Not only is such an action based on ignorance of their position as saints, but Such an action is a shameful thing, he says in verses 5 and 6. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. The very fact that these Christians cannot work out their differences among themselves and that they're taking their differences before a pagan judge should have caused them shame. We have to admit that church conflicts are difficult enough for mature Christians to handle, but they can be devastating to new Christians. Christians of all people should be able to get along. 
We have the Bible and the Holy Spirit to guide us and give us wisdom. We have a new nature that allows us to overcome our old nature. We have the supreme example of Jesus to show us how to love and forgive. And if we can't get along, what hope do we have to offer the world? So when a young Christian sees intense arguing and quarreling within their church, they may begin to question the validity of everything they've been taught. They begin to wonder if Christianity does really hold the answers to their problems. If Christianity can't handle those simple problems, then how is it going to be able to handle the enormous problem of delivering us from our sins? Not only is such an action a shameful thing, but for such an action is a sign of defeat. Verse 7 and 8, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Know yourselves, do wrong, and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. The very fact that these believers are going to court against one another, Paul says, is in itself a defeat. Whether they won or lost the case in court, they have lost spiritually because they have demonstrated pride and selfishness. Paul's solution given in verse 7 is pretty hard to swallow. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Paul says it would be better for an individual to be wronged and to suffer financial loss than to drag his faith through the mud in a pagan court of law. Perhaps a way, an example of how this should work is a story that I've heard Dr. David Jeremiah tell, a story about two Christians who were in a dispute. A young woman had given her baby up for adoption and then seven months later decided to keep the child. Unfortunately, in her state, the decision to rescind an adoption must happen within the first six months. Both sides got lawyers and planned for a court battle, but then Christians stepped in and they they offered to arbitrate. Now this will sound odd because it rarely happens in our culture, but both sides agreed to go before an arbitration panel made up of three Christian lawyers. They opened in prayer. They made the pronouncement that they they would act as if Christ himself were present, and they made sure that the proceedings were marked with love rather than hostility and accusation. They did a biblical study of the issue, and they allowed both sides to present their case and took the time to carefully consider their decision. In the end, they adopted or decided that the child should remain with the adoptive parents, a decision that both sides embraced. The biological mother had faith that the arbitrators had done their best and considered all the points in the case. She had been heard by loving and sensitive Christians. The church had been faithful to the biblical mandate. That may sound bizarre since it doesn't fit the usual pattern for this kind of dispute, but that is exactly how God says things are supposed to work with believers. And number five, and we'll be spending probably more time on this one than any other of the other points. 
Such action puts you in bad company. Such action puts you in bad company. That's the one that you do not have. Verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Beginning back in verse 8, Paul rebukes the man who was in the wrong. We don't know who this man was, but he begins to rebuke those who have defrauded their neighbor. And then in verse 9, he says, Do you not realize how serious your sin is? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's speaking pretty strongly to those who were in the wrong. Don't you realize how serious your sin is? If a Christian can cheat and defraud his brothers and sisters without conscience, then it may be fair to ask if that person is really a Christian. This man who had wronged his brother is putting himself in company with, Paul says, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, revilers, and extortioners. And none of those whose lives are characterized by those sins will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, no doubt the man figured, sure, what I'm doing to my brother isn't good, but it isn't that bad. And Paul wants him to know just how bad it was. Now, Paul is not saying that a Christian who has committed any of those sins listed here, including fornication and and homosexuality, will automatically be excluded from the kingdom of God. Instead, since Paul describes these people by their sins, he he means that their, their lives are dominated and characterized by these sins. So then... Is an occasional act of sin okay? Is that no big deal to God? Well, of course it is. Because it goes against everything that we have been given in Jesus. And because a lifestyle of sin begins with a single act of sin. The man who cheated his brother has to see that if his life was dominated and characterized by sin, as much as the people, as Paul described, he would be... He should be just as concerned for his salvation as any of these other people should. Now, there is one phrase that we want to spend just a few moments on, and that is the inclusion of the phrase, nor homosexuals. I had an argument, argument's not a good word, I had a discussion in uh, one of the local Bible colleges some years ago with a student who told me that the Bible did not condemn homosexuality. I said, oh, really? He says it never uses the word homosexual. 
That's true. If you use your King James Bible, you will not see the word homosexual. But it does condemn the practice. Since this is a clear condemnation of homosexuality, those who would like to justify the practice say that Paul, when he talks about it here, is talking about uh, homosexual prostitution, not a loving, caring, long-term relationship. But taken in context, there's no doubt that God is speaking of any kind of homosexuality here. He uses two words. Uh, First of all, the word that we have in our Bibles translated homosexuals. In the Old King James Version, it's the word effeminate. It literally was a Greek word that meant uh, those who were engaged in the practice of uh, male prostitution, especially in the, con- in the confines or in conjunction with pagan worship, which we know was going on in Corinth at that time. And then there's the term sodomite, which is uh, the King James translates as abusers of themselves with mankind. And this is a generic term that covers all kinds of homosexual practices. And even though if we, as we look at this passage, we see that only males are addressed here, the Romans chapter 1 passage makes it clear that male and female offenders are included. So the homosexual described in this list of sin is not some special version of homosexuality, but it is described and condemned along with all the other sins that are listed. Now, Paul is not writing in in or of a homophobic culture. Uh, Homosexuality was not only accepted, but it was rampant in Paul's culture. Fourteen out of the fifteen Roman emperors were bisexual or homosexual. And at this time, Nero was emperor, and that was true of him as well. On the other side, there there is a temptation among us who are conservative Bible-believing Christians to single out homosexuality as the sin that above all others that God is uniquely angry with. As in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24 through 27, we will note that homosexual sin and heterosexual sin are paired in such a way that suggests that neither is better or worse than the other. Hold on to your hats for a minute. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God addresses the sin of his people. After he lists off their hideous sins, then he says in verses 48 and 49, this is Ezekiel 16, 48 and 49, if you want to look along as I read. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you did and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Now when I say the word Sodom, automatically homosexuality comes in most of our minds. That's the sin we associate with Sodom. However, read the rest of this verse. He says, she and her daughters, and then he names three sins. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. And they did not help the poor and needy. 
If anything, it says just before that that God is more horrified by the sins of his people than he was by the sins of Sodom, even though he destroyed those cities. And in this portion of scripture, pride and arrogance were mentioned, not homosexuality. Now, let me be clear. Homosexuality is distasteful to God, and it is an abomination because it is clearly taught in both the Old and New Testaments. Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, as we see, all speak of it. And often it is listed as one of the last signs of a decaying society that is ripe for judgment. But homosexuality is not the only abomination. And apparently it's not even in the top seven. In the list of seven abominations in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, we read these words. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Ouch, because those are things that we can see in our lives pretty easily. On the other side of the spectrum, Christians can stumble when they excuse homosexuality and when they deny that it is a sin. If you believe in evolution, and if you believe that people are genetically predisposed to be homosexual, you have a problem. Let me tell you what that problem is. Since the vast majority of homosexuals do not procreate, the simple laws of mathematics lead to the unavoidable conclusion that homosexuals would have died out over the centuries if indeed they were purely or even predominantly genetically composed. Though many Christians have never been guilty of the particular sins that are listed in this list, every Christian was sinful before they were saved. Every Christian is a sinner saved by grace. We dare not ever become unloving and uncaring toward people who are locked in sin because they are right where we used to be. Such were some of you, Paul says. But we do need to note how he says that. And such were some of you, past tense. Paul clearly wants us to understand that these things should never mark the life of a Christian. If they do, they must be immediately repented of and forsaken. Paul now uses the strong, the strongest adversative participle, translated in our Bibles as put, but. Not once, but three times to indicate the contrast of the Christian life with the lifestyle that he's just been describing. He says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. 
Well, let's look at those three sub-points, if you will. But you were washed. This speaks of new life. It speaks of being born again, of being regenerated. Paul tells us in Thessalonians chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, that we are washed clean from sin, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, then, is a work of God. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. First, he says, but you were washed. Secondly, he says, but you were sanctified. This speaks of a new behavior. We're set apart. Set apart from the world and set apart to God. We are made holy and made able by the Holy Spirit to live righteous lives in a sinful world. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. That's what we've been discussing for the past several weeks in our study on Sunday morning of the book of Galatians. Justification speaks of a new standing before God. We are declared just before the court of God, not by our own deeds. We are justified by God's grace through faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. The point here is that God can take the kind of people described in verses 9 and 10 and make them into the kind of people described in verse 11. How great is the power of our God. Finally, Paul says, and in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says you should know that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in connection with this great work in constituting the life of a believer. There are many reasons, he says, that we should be careful of our conduct before this world because it not only reflects who and what we are, but it affects our testimony before a lost world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to continue to Give us information to live better lives, to correct us, to move us into the place that we need to be as Christians, to unsettle us, to jar us from our comfortable lives and our comfortable understanding sometime of your word, and help us to realize that it's a very dark world out there and we need to be involved in sharing the good news, that we are to be the salt and the light. And we can't be that unless we recognize how dark this world is. We have the answer, but we have to know that we have the answer. We have to have confidence that the gospel is true and that the gospel is the answer for man's sin, for the problems that face our world. Father, I pray that you give us courage 
we go back out into this world. Make us uh, to be the kind of Christians that we ought to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with